Welcome to Westfield Bank's inaugural episode of our Sharing Knowledge series. In today's episode, we're going to talk about ESOPs, better known as Employee Stock Ownership Plans. Now, I've invited two guests to join us here today, one an existing customer of Westfield Bank that's gone through an ESOP, and then also a center of influence that helps companies transition through an ESOP. In today's episode, we're going to cover the benefits of ESOPs, but we're also going to cover those challenges that go along with it. My name is Kevin Vonder. I'm the Chief Lending Officer, and I will be your host for each one of these episodes. Before we dive into the conversation around ESOP exit strategies, I'd like to introduce our two guests. First, we have Sean Eli from Lazier Capital, and then we have Patrick Helmuth from P. Graham Dunn. So, Sean, why don't you give us a, a little background about yourself? Sure thing. So, uh, my name is Sean Ely, and I'm with, as Kevin noted, Lazier Capital Partners. We're a Columbus-based investment banking firm. Uh, I live and work here in the, in the Northeast Ohio area. Um, our focus has been on ESOP advisory, although we do uh, traditional sell-side M&A as well. Um, the firm was founded 20 years ago and now ranks in the top five in, in ESOP advisory firms in the country. Um, I graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and uh, in the University of Chicago Business School for my MBA uh, and have lived in Northeast Ohio uh, my whole life. Okay, well, good. Well, thanks for joining us here today, Sean. And, and Patrick, if you want to give background on yourself sure. and your company. Sure. I've been at P. Graham Dunn for the past 15 years. Our factory is in Dalton, and we manufacture home decor and gifts uh, that we ship to retailers all over the country. Uh, we have retail store in Dalton and in Canton. We'd love to have you visit there if you haven't visited. Uh, about a year ago, we did an ESOP transaction, and at that time, I was elevated to the CEO position. My wife Amy and I live in uh, North Canton with our four kids. I'm a graduate of Mountain Union and uh, have my MBA from Kent State. Uh, one, one thing we've always done at, at Westfield Bank was, was work with uh, COIs, which are centers of influence, on ways we can create value for our customers. Um, that's one thing, as banking becomes more and more commoditized, you have to look at ways that you can create value for, for your customers. And, and a lot of times it's beyond those products and services. It's going to be the connections and relationships that we can help foster and build and, and develop uh, at the bank. With that in mind, Sean, uh, talk about how you got connected or how we got connected, uh, Wessel Bank with Lazier Capital. I was at a networking event with um, a number of uh, COIs and, and ran into one of your uh, senior bankers, Dan Bender. And we uh, connected for lunch, and this is, of course, all pre-COVID, so we could actually sit down and and uh, and connect over lunch. And um, it, it just grew from there. We talked about what we did. I certainly knew of Westfield, um, but didn't really know anyone there. And, and Dan's been uh, fantastic in helping uh, introduce me to to the bank. Uh, we've talked about ESOPs, and, and that's an area that I know the bank is exploring strongly. And and so we've had some great conversations. And, and I get to sit here today and have a wonderful chat with you and, and Patrick. Oh, great. Thanks for joining us. And, and one thing that makes us successful is, is our customers. Um, we wouldn't be here without our customers. And Patrick, uh, you and P. Graham Dunn have been great customers of the bank for, for many years. So if you want to talk about how that relationship sure. has transitioned yeah. uh, throughout the years. About 10 years ago, we were looking for a bank that was a little bit more personal, that wasn't chasing their stock price, that really we felt like cared about us. And uh, we uh, just developed a great relationship with our loan officer through the years and uh, became trusted advisors, I think is the way I would put Westfield Bank. And so when we started looking 
at an ESOP transaction, sitting down with your bank and, and having a bank that you trust is really important. And so we're thankful for the relationship. Yeah, and, and, and we thank you as well. So we have someone who's an expert um, that helps companies uh, through ESOPs. And then we have uh, a customer who's actually gone through an ESOP. So they can give both sides of, of how that ESOP transaction takes place. And, and as we talk about business longevity and transitioning that business, there's five stages of a business. And, and you have to identify and understand where your company is at in that cycle. Um, there's a first stage and that is the launch, right? That's the development where you're getting the business ready to, 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 to go. The second stage is then the startup, um, is actually where the company starts up and, and it's going. And then from there you go to growth. And that's what we hope to get to is the company is going to continue to grow and eventually it's going to plateau and that's the maturity. And, and once it hits there, that's when the decision has to be made. Is it something that you're going to reinvest in that company to help it continue to grow? Or is it, are you gonna transition it to that next ownership team and let them take it on and, and continue to grow? And that's what we wanna talk about today is, is those transition plans and, and how does that company, how can that company transition uh, and do it successfully? Sean, I, I guess I, I reach out to you is, is what, are, what are some of the things that, that companies should plan on in, in preparing and think about um, as, they're, as they're going to go into that, that, that next step? Well, it, it's a great question. And I think really people have to understand that, that an ESOP transaction, um, really like any other transaction, is a, is a transition of ownership. Uh, it's another option for folks to consider. Many people uh, that we chat with believe that their, their only options are to sell to a private equity buyer or a strategic buyer. Um, or some sort of management level buyout, and, and they don't really consider the ESOP as an option. Um, at the end of the day, though, it is a, a transaction, and, and you will be going through a process. So, you know, you have to get ready for that, uh, and having good financials, uh, good partnership with your bank as you start to go through that process is, is always critical. Okay. So when, when you're working with companies, what are some of the, the, the biggest challenges that they have or or maybe the mistakes that they've made as, as they've gone and, and started this whole process or transition into an ESOP? Well, I think like anything, it, it, it's very critical and it certainly sounds self-serving, but I think it's critical to surround yourself with a strong advisory team. That includes an investment banker like Lazier, um, a, a good accountant, a good attorney, and then as I said, uh, you, you know, a bank that understands the ESOP world and, and what that means. But it, it's getting prepared and being informed and having good uh, good partners as as you go through that process, because I'm I'm sure Patrick will will touch on it's it, it's there's ups and downs, and you know again it's 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 a sale of the business, and and similar to a, a private equity buy or or a strategic buyer, um, you have to go through a due diligence period, and and having good counsel and and uh, advisors is, is really critical. Patrick, uh, in, in thinking back as you guys went through. That uh, that transaction. What what are some of the things that you wish maybe you could have done differently um, through that whole ESOP process? Uh, I I can't say that there's something that I I would have necessarily done differently. It it was just a journey. Maybe that would be the one thing to say differently would just be to I wish I would have known what the journey it was going to be, and uh, all the diligence that was right. we're going to have to go through. Uh, but yeah, there was, a, there was a time where we just kept thinking, we're on the five yard line, we're on the two yard line and, and we're gonna get there and it took a while to get there. So I, just having the patience to get through 
um, each of the steps. And uh, but having people you trust is really critical. And um, for us, starting off with Westfield Bank as someone that we could talk to, uh, as a partner we could trust, helped us get off to a good start. Good. So you, you mentioned journey, and, and I think that's a, a great definition of, of the whole process on it. Maybe um, you guys can talk about when, when does someone look at that? I, I know it's not, okay, I wake up this morning and I decide, well, at the end of the year, I, I'm going to retire and sell my business. When, when does that typically start or when should that typically start when, when businesses are, are looking at uh, taking that next that next adventure? Sure. Well, uh, and I'll certainly let Patrick weigh in as well, but my counsel would be work with your financial advisors, your state planning professionals and, and, and plan well ahead. Start having these conversations because as, as Patrick noted, it's, it's not you don't wake up and, and the transaction closes in 30 days. It can be a several month process. So starting ahead of time, Evaluating your options uh, and realizing any SOP may not be the right answer in all situations, but I think owners should always consider every option that they have and then find the one that, that meets their needs. Well, I, I share the perspective of, uh, of an employee that is now running the company, not of the seller. So be clear about that. I don't know all the conversations that they have but i think sellers are often like professional athletes that don't know when to quit at times and and at times they might wake up some days and say i'll never sell this business and uh, so uh, probably what sean will tell you is that a lot of times those people haven't planned very well and they wake up one day and there's a situation and they start to say okay now we've got to do something key is planning and making sure you're prepared for, for the future. Absolutely. You know, when, when you look at the, the ESOP transaction, what are, what are some musts that should happen or, or companies should have in place to make sure that ESOP transaction um, is, 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 is going to go smoothly? But then once it's happened, that the, the company is going to continue to be able to operate efficiently once that ownership transition has, has taken place. And I know, I don't know if it's a, if it's a have to or just a best practice, um, but as far as putting a board of directors together, is, is, I mean, if you want to comment on that, is that something that is a, is a necessity or is it just a, a best practice? So, so typically what we see is um, the the trustee that's involved. So, so let's step back for a moment and understand that in an ESOP transaction, the, the selling shareholders sell their shares to a trust, the ESOP trust, and that trust itself will have an independent third-party trustee. Typically, those trustees will require uh, at some point it, it, post-closing, six months to a year, that, that, that the company forms a board, that there's an independent member of that board. Um, so it's, it's best practices and it's almost universally uh, done. Uh, Patrick can certainly speak to. Yeah, we had to, we had to form a board and I would say that anybody that has an operating board ahead of an ESOP transaction would they'd have a step ahead right so that was a, a that was a hurdle that we had to suddenly have this board in place operating new people that hadn't been doing it and so um, it's it's a big change but but yeah, our trustee would have never taken the engagement without a board. Right, okay. it's generally a requirement. And, and, and what is that board's role? Is it is it more governance and management? Because um, typically in smaller companies, a lot of times there's a blur between that, um, where, where the board typically is, is, is a governance body, but a lot of times they get involved in, in the management of the right. company. 
So how does that work in an ESOP? Well, that brings up a great question. Many owners of companies that we take into an ESOP uh, will remain and continue to run the business, certainly for a period of time. Uh, and they're always concerned about control. Entrepreneurs and, and, and business owners tend to be uh, like control. And so the, the notion of, of giving up control to others is scary. And I think what they realize, and, and Patrick can certainly speak to his experience, but um, in most cases, the board, much like a public company, is, is, is governance, not operations at all. They're there to make sure that uh, you, you know, the company's adhering to policies and standards and procedures and, and following a, a broad corporate path. But at the end of the day, the decisions continue to be made by the operating um, uh, executives at the business. Typically, the, the mm -hmm. former seller sticks on uh, for a period of time. So it, it's really to help guide. And, and there's, as I mentioned earlier, there, there's always an independent member of that board in, in most situations. And, and that person will sit on uh, the comp committee, as an example, to make sure that um, you don't want any self-dealing. Um, again, most people who go down the ESOP route uh, certainly have a lot of um, uh, very paternalistic views and, and they're not in it to try to self-deal, but having that independent board member is, is always an important factor. Yeah, we, um, we have found the outside board members to be very key and help us stay on the governance side of things as far as the board goes. But it's, it's really easy for a board member to start sticking their nose into day-to-day -day operations. And so it's, it's hard for a management person to say, hey, you probably shouldn't be bugging me about that. But that, that is the dynamics that can easily happen. When you think about transitioning a business, there's many ways that, that you can do it. Um, you can sell it outright. Uh, you can transfer ownership uh, to a family member. You can transfer ownership to a management team there or even multiple employees, or you can transition it through an ESOP. Um, Patrick, like at, at PGRAM Dunn, I mean, did you evaluate all those different options and, and, and why did you guys choose the ESOP uh, in, in the end? Well, again, I'm not a family member and I can't speak to what all conversations the family did have. Uh, but uh, there was a time that I brought up as a management person uh, the possibility of an ESOP and got the approval from the family to look into it. And so uh, we started down that path just by um, checking in with our trusted legal advisors, Critchfield Law Firm, and they uh, recommended a feasibility study. And uh, that kind of got us kicked off on considering an ESOP. Um, so really, the average guy sitting at home uh, doesn't Google how to do an ESOP and decide to do it. Mm -hmm. I think you really do need to, to check in with an advisor to give you an idea if that is even feasible. And so once it was feasible for us, it became centerpiece. Uh, but were there other conversations about selling to others? I can't speak to those, uh, but I don't think they were ever serious. In okay. uh, and, and going the ESOP route, it, it does provide advantages to the company. And, and Sean, I don't know if you want to talk about that and, sure. and, and how those advantages can maybe help pay the, 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 the burden, the debt burden make, make on the transaction. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so you're alluding to uh, there, there's two significant tax advantages available to, uh, to an, in an ESOP transaction. The first will accrue to the selling shareholders who can make an election uh, called a 1042 election, which will allow them to sell tax deferred and ultimately tax free 
uh, thereby avoiding capital gains taxes on, on the sale of the business. And most of our clients have, have a very low basis in the business, which means that essentially the whole purchase price, however they would sell it, would be uh, capital gains. Uh, subject to capital gains taxes. So in an ESOP election, in a 1042 election in an ESOP, uh, they can defer and then ultimately eliminate those capital gains taxes. Uh, the second tax benefit that accrues in an ESOP scenario is uh, uh, 100% S-Corp ESOP operates completely free of federal and state income taxes. So that in, in lieu of paying 40% to the government in taxes each year, that cash stays within the business to help fund growth, um, uh, pay down the debt, and uh, and then ultimately repurchase shares from uh, departing employees. Oh. So are the ESOP, I guess the, the transactions, at least the debt structure, built around that tax saving so that it's it's a a non-cash a non-cash flow um, I don't know transaction for the company where it doesn't impact them as much from a, a cash flow standpoint? Well, the, the transactions are all structured on traditional, commercially reasonable banking terms. Leverage isn't any more or less necessarily with an ESOP. Uh, what the ESOP structure, if, if structured appropriately, can provide is a lot of cushion in cash flow and, and really give the bank, the senior bank, as well as the seller, who typically will hold a seller note as, as part of the transaction, a lot of comfort in their ability to ultimately be repaid out of, out of the cash flows of the business. Okay. Uh, one of the challenges, I guess, in, in selling a business is coming up with a value and, and one that's at, at arm's length um, that makes sense. And, and, and talk about that um, in, in an ESOP transaction. How does, how does that happen and, and how often does that have to happen? So, so you, you bring up a good point. Valuation is always a, a hot topic for any business, right? And, and I think we found there's a lot of misperceptions around ESOP valuations. Um, by law, ESOPs are permitted to pay fair market value, which, as, as we all know, is, is typically a range of value. It's not a scientifically derived point. Um, and, and so an ESOP can pay a, a reasonable fair market-based valuation. What an ESOP can't do is pay that potential market clearing last dime price that you might receive out of an auction. But given some of these tax benefits we touched on, uh, in many, frankly, most cases, an ESOP uh, may actually produce more cash than any other option. But from a valuation perspective, our role in, in being engaged as the seller's representative, as the owner's representative, is as part of this feasibility analysis that, that Patrick spoke of, we would tell the owner what we believe the value of the business is. And then if they are willing to sell at that price, we become engaged and we represent them going through the process. But ultimately, that trustee that we talked about previously will engage their own third-party independent valuation firm to provide them a fairness opinion on the transaction. So, so we sit with the seller and represent their interests. The buyer is essentially the trustee and the valuation firm that is engaged by that trustee. And hopefully we can come to an agreement on a reasonable, fair market valuation. Now, on an ongoing basis, um, the ESOP is required to have an annual valuation done each year. In many cases, it's that same firm that did the initial deal valuation and provided that fairness opinion. And that valuation that's done each year is, is based on the performance of the company, uh, traditional valuation metrics, but the valuation then forms the basis for the statements that are provided to the employees on an annual basis, showing their the, the shares that they have, 
the value of those shares, the vested balance of those shares, et cetera. And those valuations are not easy peasy uh, engagements to go through. It's not like just turn over your financials. They ask a lot of questions right. about your customers, your management team, uh, your products, your uh, marketing sales opportunities. And uh, the phone calls can be long and tedious, uh, but you understand that they, uh, they have a serious job to do, right. but I want to be clear that they're, they're not fun. Yeah, <laughs> I'd have to imagine one of the one of the roles or, or purposes of it is is to identify the true value of the company without that ownership or that owner still being involved with it. Because a lot of times in businesses, owners always think their business may be valued here, and it's really only only valued here. Um, but the other challenge with it as well is is how much of that value is based on that owner and if that owner isn't there anymore is there still that same revenue stream that's that's coming in so so i think the the, the valuations help define that and and, and make sure that it, it gives a, a true value um, but to sean's point there are probably a lot of cases where the owners still stay actively involved and transition out over a period of years right, right. so it's not it that's where it becomes really not just a science, but an art for the evaluator right. to kind of figure out what that impact will be over time. So, so we, we talked about a board of director and a trustee. So what, what are their roles and, and how they differ um, in an ESOP? Well, at a very high level, the trustee uh, is a independent fiduciary representing the interests of the beneficiaries, which are the employees of, of the ESOP plan. Um, they have a very basic role, um, important, but, but very basic. It's to ensure that the company is adhering to the plan documents because at its, its very core in ESOP is a qualified retirement plan governed by the rules of ERISA. And then the, the specifics of the, of the, the plan itself are, are in the documents. So they want to make sure that the uh, company is following those, those plan documents, adhering to those documents, and that in any sort of significant transaction, whether it be a, a sale or a merger of some sort, that the employees are being treated fairly. Uh, and, and really that's, uh, that's I, I think, the focus of their role. The board of directors, on the other hand, is, as we touched on, a little more governance oriented. Sure. Now, is there interaction between the two? I, I, Patrick, in, in your our company. trustee will sit in on our board meetings, uh, but does not vote on okay. things. For instance, if we're passing a budget, they're just an interested shareholder, but they wouldn't speak up and say uh, no on that budget. Um, they're they're an interested shareholder basically, but the governance, the policies, the budget, the compensation—that's all uh, the responsibility of the board. Okay. Right. You know, one one thing I've read about in, 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 in talking with other companies that have gone through an ESOP is there is a productivity improvement, I guess. Um, employees feel they have ownership because they, they, they truly do. Um, like, and and you, know, like you, you get better performance out of companies, um, better morale out of employees. I know you're just have went through one recently, so I don't know if it's too soon to, to, to gauge that, but I don't know if you if you've witnessed any of that at, at Pete Ram Dunn, Patrick. We're, we're, I think it's a little soon for us, but we're starting to speak the lingo. Like when the, when the deal closed, we all got t-shirts that say, we own this on the front. Um, so we're trying to uh, get that culture and we're just getting our first ESOP statements now. And so employees will see how many shares do I own? 
what's the price per share and then they'll start to calculate in their head if i stay here 10 years how many shares may i have and if the price per share goes up if we work hard so that's really our challenge to them and as we um, hire new employees i meet with them as they're being welcomed into the p Graham dunn family and i explain to them you know the importance of how if we work hard and our price per share goes up how how much that will affect their long-term financial situation and so um, i do think that over time it will make more and more sense as we get our statements as people start to see those balances go up um, but not every employee is part of the plan as well there's there's you have to qualify to be part of the plan at p Graham dunn you have to be 21 you have to work six months and so um and, and Patrick, it, is, is that similar to your 401k? Yes. That same, same sort of entry yep. requirements? Yep. Right. So we want to get employees. One of the things they talk about is you want to get your employees to ownership as soon as possible right. for that type of motivational benefits. And, and, and you mentioned 401k. Is it similar to the 401k? So an ESOP doesn't preclude you from having a 401k either for, for your company. So it's yeah, an added benefit for, for, mm -hmm. for retirement. The, the vast majority of of ESOP companies have, and 90 plus percent have, also have 401k plans. So they are a complement to, not a replacement for the 401k. Um, and, and I'll just touch on very quickly, there's a, a number of organizations, the NCEL, which is the National Center for Employee Ownership, as well as the ESOP Association, that have, have uh, you know, sponsored academic studies and have a bunch of statistics uh, available on their website that, that speak to the um, enhancement of productivity, uh, employee satisfaction, et cetera, that, that can occur with, uh, with an ESOP. And, and, and I think they're uh, across the board overwhelmingly positive, which, which truly only, only makes sense that if, if everyone has skin in the game at, at the margin, that, that company likely will, will perform better. Um, the other comment I'll make is we talk about best practices across the board. We always encourage our clients post-closing to engage a uh, communications firm to help them roll out the 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 message because many folks have the notion that if if they enter into an ESOP transaction that suddenly the employee base will will, will miraculously understand what it all means and, and how it impacts them and and the reality is it's it, it's it's a constant communication so there are firms out there that will will help with that roll that out communicate it to to the employees and and what we found is and, and Patrick explained it very well is that it all seems very nebulous and not real until they start getting statements. And, and, and once those statements you know, start landing in employees' hands and they start to see their balances grow over time, it really becomes concrete and, and, and they realize what it can mean for them. I think that's a good part of it. The one thing that can be miscommunicated, however, is employees might think they have a little more power than they Very actually true. do. So, you know, people have to still stay in their lanes and do their jobs. Right. And somebody that's working in the manufacturing floor can't come in and make all the human resources decisions. Very true. Um, so uh, that was the one thing we really stressed to our employees when the ESOP transaction closed is, we are hoping that your day-to-day -day work life is very similar. You have the same manager, the same job duties. Um, it's just at the end of the day, when this company starts making money, the hope is that 
instead of going into one owner's pocket, it starts going, the money starts to go into your pocket. Sure. So we were talking um, earlier, so to make an ESOP transaction successful, you have to have a trustee that's a, a, a good trustee that um, represents the employees. You have to have a, a board of directors that helps govern um, and, and provide that governance for, for the company. And then Patrick, I think you just alluded on, you have to have a strong management team. I think that's that's key um, through the whole process as, as you go along because each each area has their own role to, to make that uh, make that successful. I would add one other thing. You have to have an owner that wants to transition sure. in some way. Um, if, you, if that person is not ready to transition, then it, it's not the right time. Sure. And I, I think that's what with any 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 transition, um, whether it's a sale outright, an ESOP, or, or or to the next generation, that that's key to make anything successful that way. So as, as you look back, and I, and I guess, um, what are some what, what are some advice you can give to our audience out there on on ESOPs if they're thinking about uh, like exploring that? for their mm -hmm. transition plan, Patrick? Well, uh, Sean mentioned it, I'll, I'll underscore it again. Having advisors that you trust is important because what you're going through when you're working on a transaction, you don't really understand what they're talking about half the time. And you can, you know, if you don't trust the people you're working with, you can throw in the towel early, long, early on. I think that could be possible. Um, the second thing I would suggest is, is uh, reach out to somebody that's gone through it uh, and um, get an idea when you're when you're uncertain is this going the right direction if you have somebody that's gone through it recently to just uh, get some advice as far as what's the process normally like I think those would be great first steps yeah. John can you add anything no I, I agree I think it, we touched on it earlier I think having a great team around you um, and really you know, what we try to do when we work with clients is really lay out that, that the steps in the process. We don't want them to be surprised. We want them to understand what it takes to, to get through it. And, and again, it's not necessarily any different than a, a third-party transaction. Um, I would argue it tends to be a little more streamlined than, than taking out to a broad auction. Uh, but it's still a process. And, and so we want to make sure everybody understands what to expect. And then we're, we're thrilled, you know, our, our best uh, referral sources really are our former clients because at the end of the day, they have tended to love the, the outcome and, and what it meant for them personally, as well as for their company. So we talked today a lot about the positives of an ESOP transaction. When is an ESOP a bad decision? Well, I would respond by saying, you know, an ESOP is a sale, a transition, an ownership transition option. It's a tool for sellers to consider. Uh, and just like any other tool, I think um, if it fits, it can be very good. Uh, if it's not a good fit, probably shouldn't pursue it. And by fit, I mean, it does it meet the seller's objectives? And in that, um, sometimes an owner will tell us, I, I want every last dime out of this business in terms of evaluation. Then, then an ESOP probably isn't the best way to guarantee that. Um, if there's not a strong management team in place, maybe the best option would be to transition to uh, a strategic buyer that can sort of absorb the, the operations of the business. So again, an ESOP is in a situation or will fit in every situation, um, but it certainly should be, um, I, I think, in the evaluation process for any owner that's thinking about a transition. I would say that if uh, 
the owner is going to transition out of the business or and maybe some other significant executives. You don't want to see a brain drain and have the business left with the employees and they just don't have what it takes to keep moving the business forward. So I think that's important. I think it's important that the owner is ready to transition if that is their desire. If they're really a controlling person and they can't live with a board of directors, um, it's it's not going to be a good fit. Well, I, I do want to thank you both uh, for taking the time here today to join me and, and, and talk about uh, this topic. Uh, ESOPs, it, it's, a, it's a great tool that companies can use to help transition um, to that next generation. And I think one thing we, we didn't touch upon that's a positive for that is whenever you do something like that, uh, a transition to the employee, there's a lot of benefits. And we talked about productivity, um, internal, there's internal ownership and, and, and all of that. But one thing we didn't uh, touch upon is it maintains that company within that community. And, and that's Absolutely. a lot of times that's important because as, as business owners and being part of that community, you want to be good stewards of that community. So it's just a, a, another way that uh, is beneficial to not only the company, the employees, but the community as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So great. All right. Before we sign off today um, from our podcast, one thing we do want to do is share with the audience is, is things that we're watching or, or identifying with um, out in the market. So John, if you want to, talk about what you're looking at and what's well, piquing your interest. You know, I think certainly as we sit here today, we, we've got a couple big looming um, issues in, in front of the country. Uh, the upcoming election, uh, I think, will have a, a big impact on business uh, going forward. And uh, and certainly the pandemic is, is still um, uh, still affecting the country. And so uh, the development of a vaccine, hopefully, uh, will, will come along. And, and really the, the, the question of of how is the pandemic and the election, you know, affecting business. I think those are two critical factors right now. Okay, great, thank you. Patrick? Yeah, my thoughts are similar about the impact of the pandemic. Um, one of the things I'm watching is there continues to be predictions that bricks and mortar retail is gonna cater, uh, crater, it's gonna be over, and everybody's just gonna sit on their couch and do all their shopping and, the one thing I'm watching is uh, I don't believe it. I think Americans like to get out. I think they like to do things. And I think bricks and mortar will come back. Good. Thank you. And, and then for me, um, I think you guys have, have, have touched on it. And, you know, like it's it's the economy. Mine's more the economy. And, and how much of an impact did uh, this pandemic have on our customers? There's been a lot of stimulus out there from the government, maybe some false sense of security from businesses. And as we as we look at you know, like third quarter, end of third quarter, into fourth quarter, and, and more so into 2021, like once everything washes out, what is that impact going to be to our, our customers? And then how quickly are they going to truly recover? And and so that's something definitely to take into consideration. Because um, one thing we want to make sure we do at, at at the bank is how do we make our customers more successful and help them through those issues um, with with that pandemic. So. Again, I want to thank you both for for joining us here today and and sharing your knowledge uh, about ESOPs. One thing we believe at Westfield Bank, and and, it has always been a tradition, is is we believe in sharing knowledge and building trust. And that's another way that how we create value for for our customers out there. So thank you guys again for for joining me today. Thanks Thanks for having having us. Sharing knowledge is brought to you by Westfield Bank. 
hosted by Kevin Vondro, Chief Lending Officer. And it comes to you from the imagination and creativity of Chris Van Osdale, Elise Love, and Perrin Wilson, the marketing communication strategist at Westfield Bank. Produced and edited and mixed by Shark and Minnow. Learn more at westfield-bank.com. Sharing knowledge and shedding light on the financial industry to empower financial freedom. The Sharing Knowledge series of videos, podcast episodes, and articles are for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as legal, tax, financial investment, accounting, or regulatory advice. Opinions expressed in third-party information shared herein do not reflect the opinions of Westfield Bank, Westfield Group, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. The information shared does not constitute nor is intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase or sale of any product or service. Testimonials may not be representative of the experience of other customers and are not guarantees of future performance or success. Bank products and services provided by Westfield Bank, member FDIC, an equal opportunity lender.